0: You've got ten seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is play by play cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it. Just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore?
1: right john sure i did all right because the red light was not on
0: the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster
1: oh you can stick me in some kind of italian boat because that one is gondola
0: now from new york really all the big ones are from new york your host joe godet it's still joel yeah he will not be able to see very well cotton Oh yeah, that is right. It's everything you didn't ask for and then more. Brand new open here on Play by Playcast. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download. We are officially on episode number 151 of the podcast. My name is Joel Godet. This is the podcast about Play by Play broadcasters for Play by Play broadcasters hosted by... A Play by Play Broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories and preparations of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. 150 episodes in, 151 now. Figured I'd freshen things up a little bit. Little new imaging. Throw some Brockmire at you and some Ron Burgundy. All of, you know, the legitimate broadcasters out there that we profile (laughs) thanks as always for joining us you can find the pod on social media at pxpcast. i'm at joel godet j-o-e-l-g-o-d-e-t-t ben wagner of the toronto blue jays is our guest this week and uh, a couple of interesting points going into this conversation uh the first of which was just like total coincidence you know sometimes people will say speak something into existence i think that's like a self-help thing you have to hey if you want something speak it into existence had this conversation with Ben that you're about to listen to on Tuesday of this week. And at the end of the conversation, and we're going to talk about Vladdy Jr. Uh, in what you're about to hear, but at the end of the conversation, I said to Ben, you know, how's Vlad doing? You know, what's he look like? How's he handling the majors? And if he doesn't hit, would they, like, I was just curious, would they, with a the prospect of his magnitude and all the hubbub, Would they dare send him back to AAA if, you know, he was still batting 190 after X number of games? And, uh, you know, Ben and I then joked, and and Ben said, well, hey, of course, he hasn't hit a home run yet, but in one of the biggest parks in baseball, it would be poetic if he hit his first tonight, wouldn't it? So, of course, he hit his first and his second on Tuesday night. Welcome to the show, Vlad Guerrero Jr. I don't think we have to worry about him going uh, much of anywhere. Ben Wagner and I go back a long way though. He was my first professional boss as a matter of fact. Uh, I worked for Jason Benetti when I was in Salem with the Salem Avalanche, now the Red Sox. Uh, but that was I, I was still in college. It was technically an internship. I don't think I got credit or paid for it. It was really kind of volunteer work. Um, but the first time I got paid, my first true boss, was Ben Wagner back in the summer of 2009 when I was the number three broadcaster uh, with the Buffalo Bisons. I did middle innings on select road games, and I filled in for Ben when he went over to TV for select home games. And uh, I lived with him for a couple of months. Maybe I, maybe it was only one month. I ate fondue out of the fondue pot because I'm a chocoholic Couple days after we had used it, uh, Ben was—he was a really good boss and a really good guy to work with and, and learn from. And it was awesome for him that last year he got the call up to replace Jerry Howarth as uh, a member of the Toronto Blue Jays broadcast team. So, uh, good conversation here with Ben about his path and how he calls a game, dealing with Vlad Jr. and a host of other things. But where I wanted to start with Ben this week and why I really wanted to have a baseball guy on the podcast is something I've been thinking about for a couple of weeks. Ball State Baseball has some really good pitchers this year. Our Friday night guy is a guy by the name of Dre Jamison. He's five foot nine and 160 pounds and throws 97. He doesn't exist in nature. Uh, he'll be a first-round draft pick. He's got a couple million coming his way. So, like, he's pretty dominant. Struck out 16 the other week. And it's always difficult to hit him. Like, he's, he's, he's hard. He, he has the issue of he takes no hitters deep into games sometimes uh john baker who follows him as our saturday starter has allowed uh five singles in the last three weeks that's it and leads the mid-american conference in era for a starter he too has taken some no hitters pretty deep into ball games this year so it just got me thinking um and chase Antle, who was a bowling green pitcher who's had a fine season, um, up and down. Uh, he, against Ball State, took a no-hitter into the fifth inning a couple of weeks ago. So it just got me thinking as to what we do as broadcasters when it comes to talking about no-hitters and what the unwritten rules are for us as broadcasters. I have always been of the ilk that you call the game. Like, if somebody's driving in the car and they turn on the radio, they don't want it danced around. They Like, I want to know that somebody's throwing a no-hitter. If I'm tuning into the game... You need to make me want to listen. I want to listen if it's a no-hitter. I don't necessarily want to listen if I get into the car and I have to think about the way that you've wound me through the fact that it's a no-hitter. And I don't believe in broadcasters' jinxes. But I kind of started to the last couple of weeks, because in Chase Antle's no-hit bid against Ball State... He was no-hit through four. We came back in the fifth, and I started talking about the history of no-hitters at Bowling Green and how Oral Hershiser, I think, was the last one to throw a nine-inning no-hitter. And, like, three pitches later, the no-hitter was gone. John Baker, a couple of weeks ago, had a no-hitter into the seventh inning. And the first time I actually said the word no-hitter was in the seventh inning. And he lost it. I had... You know, like... I hadn't danced around it, but I'd alluded to it. I, you know, I mean, I'd said he hasn't given up a hit. Um, I, you know, I'd said he'd given up three walks and nothing else. I, I think I said. I mean, I, I think I was pretty blunt. I, I, I think I said at one point, um, Northern Illinois has no hits through six or through five, but I never said the word no hitter. And then the second I mentioned no hitter, it got broken up like a batter later. So I started to think about. Like, maybe I actually do have a broadcaster's jinx in the back of my mind. And then this past week, when Ball State took on Ohio, John Baker did it again. He actually threw a no-hitter this time. It was pretty cool. It was the third time I've called a no-hitter in my career um, for the team I was working for. Randy Fontanez for the University of South Florida in 2010. Uh, Nick Teppish and Jimmy Reyes for the Myrtle Beach Pelicans in 2012 and um, John Baker and Lucas Jacksich, uh for Ball State this past Saturday. And uh, again, I danced around it and I you know they have no hit, whatever. they But I never said the word no hitter until late in the game and then they still threw no hitter. So all's well that ends well, no jinx. But I did have somebody tweet at me and say that I was brave for having mentioned the word no hitter. Tweeted us, if you have any stories, at PXPcast. I'm curious the thoughts of everyone out there. Do you say no hitter? When do you say no hitter? I always joke. I mean almost I, I mean I think every first inning. If a pitcher gets through a first inning, one, two, three, I think I almost always or like one out of every three games will go to break, you know. Dre Jamison, perfect game intact as we go to the second. But I mean at that point it's kind of jocular. What are your thoughts? Let us know at PXPCast. I'm at Joel Godet on how you describe no hitters and uh, the approach that you take. Sue me. If I said no hitter and you lost a no hitter, maybe I said it too loud and you heard me from the the booth. I don't, or from the mound. (laughs) It is what it is. I'm just of the ilk that we are information vessels and the information that is important in that moment is um, saying the fact that a no hitter is happening. That's where I actually start this conversation with Ben Wagner, though, because he has called no-hitters in his career, uh, including one by um, a Canadian in Canada against the Blue Jays. So we'll talk about that. That's actually where our conversation starts this week with uh, Ben Wagner from the Toronto Blue Jays on episode number 151 of Play-by-Playcast. What is the Ben Wagner rule of handling no-hitters? After six. And
1: I think I've... (sighs) And I think I've leaned on this more so recently, even with the Blue Jays' offensive struggles, where there have been frequent games. I mean, we're talking double-digit games where there are no hit through three and the offense has been anemic. But it gets real when you bring it up in terms of conversation and the fact that a guy has a chance at it, I think after six. Because now you're down to needing nine outs, it just becomes much more of a frenzy pace in social media. Um, The in-game alerts come in. Like I think it becomes real after six. So I'll start to really lean on the fact of the broadcast and telling fans more of a sense of urgency (laughs) Um, that after six, it, it becomes a big thing
0: will you acknowledge it though like in the fourth or the fifth and be like you know after five the blue jays have no runs on no hits or is yeah because or is it like when you say the magic word no hitter is after six
1: yeah i think it the magic word no hitter comes after six or if if there's a case where there's been a couple of walks and There are no hits in the fourth, right? You know, the Blue Jays have only had two base runners in this game, and they're being no hit by player X. Uh, I think it's just, it's easy. It is our job. Bottom line is, it's our job. And if that peaks the the ears a little bit of a listener or somebody that's casually tuning in, and it may not even be the opponent's fan or Blue Jay fan that's tuning in, it may gain their interest and keep them next to the radio or on their earbuds for an extra 15 to 20 minutes until that first hit happens. Or when they see it on the byline, maybe later that night on MLB network, for example, and be like, Oh, I tuned into that game. When did they get that hit? You know, and then (laughs) they go back and they do a little research. It builds maybe in a very small way. It connects fans and maybe has a larger scope of it. Um, I know as a listener and somebody that's a radio nerd, I just love to tune into a ball game and find out one or two nuggets right away of why I should, continue listening to this game and if it's a fact where a guy's got a perfect game or there's a milestone that is approaching that's just something that's important to me and they hold my interest
0: i'm always one of those guys too that like when there's a first hit in like the first inning i'm always like oh and there goes the no hitter for the day uh so like i think about (laughs) it immediately like immediately when you get through the first inning i'm like oh well then okay no hits all right we're on our way here Um, How about when it happens against you? So, you know, I've I've heard the John Paxson call and it's different, obviously, because you're a a Canadian, you're a broadcaster for a Canadian team and he was a Canadian who did it in Canada. Um, But how do you handle broadcasting a historic moment like that when it's the Blue Jays who will inevitably be very unhappy that night?
1: And they were. That was May 8th, 2017. I'm 36 games into my major league career, and this is what's kind of rolled out in front of me. All right, big boy, let's see how you handle this test. Uh, and it's James Paxton. It's on native soil. It's at the Rogers Center. It's a Blue Jays team you know, that had overperformed, I think, at the beginning of the season and was somewhat of a surprise uh where they were and all this all of a sudden you know it's always a storyline anytime james paxton pitches in canada let alone has any sort of success like he had that night Uh, once the crowd got behind it later in the ball game i felt much more comfortable in terms of what i was able to relay the energy behind it for that moment um There have been other moments that have flirted with no hitters and perfect games, deep into ball games, that I've been way less excited, so to speak. But I'm also of the the caliber of big moments are big in the game. Exciting things are exciting and they have to live and they have to be within the moment. I don't think as a, as a broadcast voice, of a major league team or an NBA team or whatever, that you should automatically go into Homer mode and be so depressed and so, you know, anti-reactionary with that moment, especially if you're the road team because the crowd behind you is going absolute bananas in these big moments, and you have to convey that energy that you're witnessing, and that's what makes broadcasting live sports so incredible to be in the arena or be at the ballpark or at the field when these things happen.
0: How many have you called in your career?
1: I have called two no-hitters. The first was combined and the second was the James Paxton no-hitter. Did and you- the first, you have to go all the way back to A-Ball when the Lexington <laughs> Legends combined for a for a no-hitter at First Energy Park in Lakewood, New Jersey.
0: Was it anybody good?
1: And you know what, that, that I actually don't remember, but I believe Hunter Pence was on that team. So that's, this is how far back we're going. Yeah, I remember the, the Blue Claws team that year was really good and had a number of, of names that people would know right now, uh, including Carlos Carrasco, who's having a, an amazing career with the Cleveland Club and uh, has gone on to do just really cool things. Jay Happ was part of that, too, but... um yeah, you know, those, those teams, those teams in Lakewood in the early days had notable names. No real big moments outside the uh, the Lexington Legends rolling into town, combining for the no-no. What, uh,
0: like at, at what point do you start thinking about if this happens, this is kind of something I want to say? And I, I only ask it from the standpoint of, and we've had this conversation on the podcast before many times, um, and I'm always of the ilk of like, whatever comes out is what comes out and don't think about it because you'll ruin it. But I'm doing this game on Saturday and I sent it to break and I said it was the first no hitter nine innings in Ball State history. And I said, you know, like one for the history books, Lucas Jacksich, you're going to want to save that baseball. And like as I sent it to break, I was like, gosh, damn, that would have been great to save for the final out. Um, <laughs> I, was like, I really wish I would have thought of that earlier. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you put any thought into what might come out uh, for a big moment of a, of a situation like that?
1: Not pregame, but I think as games are going on, you're looking at all the factors around it. Um, I'll reference a couple of plays that were made in that game against the Mariners, and there was a dive and grab at third base. There was another big play, if I remember, that were not early but kind of in the middle of the game and he just had a sense the way that he was working and, and kind of just the the rhythm of where the blue jays were that night at the plate their approach and just watching paxton work that you that you think like oh my god that could be one of the turning points of this game and then that seed is planted and you know there are a number of things that from canadian baseball history that these things just don't happen and when something good for a canadian-born player happens it it makes national news and you want your call i think to resonate with fans across the board the broad strokes of it right so as that's going on i'm not gonna lie i mean yeah i thought about the moment i wasn't sure you're never sure in baseball too how that final out's coming it could be a strikeout it could be a cue shot off the end of the bat that dribbles to the second baseman, or it could be a play at the wall, you know, that, that seals the deal. And all of that has to get one relayed with clarity, but then you got to wrap it up and put a bow on it. Um, you know, it'd be great if a guy comes in and throws 97 miles an hour and just blows away the side, And you know, you can just kind of amplify the call as you get to that point, but that's just not how baseball works ever, ever. Um, <laughs> So, so I mean, I think you're for me, I wanted to make sure I had my facts, right. Um, as that game was building on, we have an incredible resource with the stats, Inc and Sportsnet stats. So you're, you're getting all these nuggets, just jamming your text stream on Twitter, on email. And I'm trying to just keep my mind wrapped up within the 92nd break. As the blue days are coming up in the bottom of the ninth. So yeah there's a checklist of things that i'm thinking about not necessarily even related to the call there's a couple of things that i want to make sure i've got down in my own mind where i can capsulize the moment and make it make it good for the medium um and and hopefully you know be proud of the call at the end of the day i want my work to be something i'm proud of so that's a really long-winded way to say i don't necessarily script out how i'm going to call a final out of course but you there are certain things i think you have to just go through as a broadcaster to make sure you encapsulate the moment and are able to relay it from your chair wherever you're viewing this game and get it out to the masses
0: let me uh i'll come back to i want to put that in a larger scope um, but i'll come back to that i want to go like thirty thousand foot view um, now, where we usually start with people, um, and that is that before you got to the Blue Jays to to be um, one of the voices of Toronto, you spent 14 years in the minors. Um, what were those 14 years like? And uh, like, at at what point did you did you think to yourself, like, man, is this going to happen?
1: Because uh, that happened multiple times. <laughs> uh, I think you know, in 14 years. Of minor league baseball, there were a couple of different phases where, coming out of college, I had this vision of going into minor league baseball to one encompass a resume that would be mar- marketable if broadcasting didn't work out. Broadcasting. Broadcasting and professional baseball didn't work out hmm. as well. I think there's there's two ways to look at that. Um, some of the career advice that I got immediately, if it didn't want to go into local TV, local radio, and I'm talking like small market stuff like Terre Haute, Syracuse, Indiana, you know, that kind of small market. Um, just I was more of a realist. I didn't think that I had any shot in the world uh, at the time of getting my first job in Indianapolis or in any medium-sized market whether it be tv or radio so i wanted to go into sports i thought that i could be and i felt more comfortable working with the team on a day-to-day basis and that stemmed from my relationships that i was able to build in the athletic department and the fun that i had covering baseball in the years prior and somebody gave me some career advice be like oh you should go to the winter meetings submit your tape and resume and some of the people said great Now, you're going to have to do 55 jobs, and actually calling the game ranks 55th on that job list. But what you're going to walk away from the first couple of years being a professional and hired in the sports industry is you're going to learn a lot about marketing. You're going to learn a lot about sales. You're going to learn a lot about media and PR. All of these drivers that, as a 22-, 23-, 24-year-old, I thought would make me much more inviting, lucrative for that next stop if it's a number one or a number two of a team or if it's jumping into small market radio and television where i could have you know just a little bit of business acumen that that would pay off big dividends and that's why minor league baseball was my choice and went in as a number two in lakewood things worked out in my favor i got hired as a number one right after that first year and in that first off season after my first year full time i was a finalist for a triple a job and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, maybe I do have a future in broadcasting and broadcasting baseball. So that gave me a lot of confidence where I fell short in round one in that position. I thought, OK, I'm going to keep my nose to the grindstone, keep chugging away, try to move up to double A AA or triple A, what have you. And I got some good feedback, you know, on those first couple of reels in baseball. And baseball people kind of liked what I was doing and how I conducted myself. So I took that as a lot of confidence behind the scenes as well. And in the late winter, early spring of 2007 is when Jim Rosenhaus got promoted to the Indians. And, uh, blindly, I had no inside track on this whatsoever. I applied to Buffalo and my, my tape and my resume just kept getting through the different phases. And after a couple of phone interviews and a sit down one-on-one in Buffalo at the front office, um, they tapped me on the shoulder and they said, okay, you're our guy. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, you know, peel back layer one, you know, with the confidence of trying to get to AAA, getting to AAA, which for me too is a big jump because Buffalo, I didn't realize it at the time. I knew they were an incredibly successful organization. They have wonderful ownership and they still have wonderful ownership. Um, but also the fact with how Buffalo is regarded within the baseball community, I wasn't fully aware of until I got the job and baseball people were calling me, telling me how much of a great jump this is going to be for me personally and professionally. And Buffalo turned out to be every bit of that fast forward, you know, 10, 11 years. But with Buffalo, too, came other things where I thought I could expand my resume and do mid mid-major college basketball on radio and on television with the regional sports network that was already established there. And I thought, okay, now I can pad my resume and do other stuff on top of baseball. Mm. And I was trying to do that the first off season. And within 2008 to 2009 was my first opportunity to become a finalist with a major league opportunity. And I thought, okay, this is another encouraging step in my career. It was incredibly demoralizing when I found out that I didn't get the job. But again, you know, relatively soon after getting one rung higher on the ladder, you think about your professional and personal goals and what, what you really want to hone in on. And after going through that first process and the feedback that I got from the team, people that I was working with, plus then the reels that followed, I really thought I had a shot. I really did. And that, that became my number one focus of not only becoming a better broadcaster, but trying to get to the major leagues and and do that. And, um, and, you know, you fall short on a couple of opportunities or jobs you really think that you're qualified for and you want, uh, and it sucks. It's just, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, And it happened to me a couple of times and there was one specific incident where, i I thought I nailed everything. I nailed the phoner, I nailed the sit down. I nailed the gamut of going to that team's front office and sitting with nine different people and going through the hours of peppering of questions and situations and scenarios, and you fall short on that, and I was crushed, man. I just I was reevaluating what I was doing because it felt like you did everything right, and at the end of the day, and it has nothing to do with the, the direction that they went either. But at the end of the day, you're just wondering if you're continuing to do it right and if it would ever happen. And I got a couple of pep talks and (laughs) I got a a shot on the chin and I got some encouragement, you know, from friends and family. And ultimately, you know, you you just stick with it. And then a couple of years later, again, timing is everything with everything. And, um, you know, Jerry Jerry Howard announced his retirement a couple of weeks away from spring training beginning and broadcast starting within days. And the Blue Jays had to cover one, their broadcast roster to get off the ground in spring training. And um, they never took my badge away. (laughs) So so it worked out. And um, you know, here I am. Those are the multiple layers, right? Those are the multiple layers of plotting out what you want for your career, what you want for personal development and the breaks that come along the way. And as frustrating as, a lot of that stuff is it never outweighed the good that was happening for for me in Buffalo and and ultimately now in the GTA.
0: How did over those, particularly the eleven years in Buffalo? So you've arrived in AAA, and I'm sure at that point you're four years into a minor league career, and you're saying like I am I am here. Um, how did you most improved, and where did you most need to improve? Um, in that decade to get yourself from being a guy that can get that Buffalo Bison's job to being a guy that is taken seriously at that next level uh, when people start to look to fill major league vacancies?
1: I think more importantly is how you relate with the people in the clubhouse and the coaching staff and in the minor leagues, the Rovers that come through. You have to treat people like, like people. And I think as many resources as the internet and blogs and everything can can provide you i think you get a lot of work done by just working the walls of the clubhouse especially in baseball where you're present you're in front of the players you ask sometimes the tough baseball questions on good days and bad days but also the fact where there are some days where you just need to disappear because they need their space and you have to have that feel and i think over the course of AAA and seeing the good of somebody going up to the major leagues with their debut and everybody that's eager to talk about that. You also have to be sensitive of the, the bad news too, because for everybody that goes up, somebody has got to come down. And I think m- feeling out those relationships and knowing how to orchestrate myself in a professional manner is something that I, I know I grew in those 10 years. And you do it with maturity as a person too, from the time you turn 25, 26 to the time you turn 35, 36 and 37, now 38, you just, you have a better feel of how to build those relationships too. On the air, you're constantly trying to improve and call things different and keep it one fresh for you, the broadcaster and, and build up, the X's and the O's, and there are good days and bad days, just like everybody has good days and bad days in the office, I believe. Uh, And you just try to, you try to weed out those bad days and keep them as strong as you can and crisp as you can. So in my mind, I structure my day. And this is another thing that I learned in the minors, especially in Buffalo. In my mind, I needed to be at my best for those three to four hours that were on the air. And if that meant sleeping in till 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'm not, I'm not a big time late, late afternoon or nap guy or late morning sleeper. I had to restructure my day and kind of my approach to shut off a phone, turn off the laptop or whatever, and, and make sure that you were prepared mentally and physically to be your best for those hours that you're on the air. And I think, you know, making sure that uh, you could do that helped me grow leaps and bounds, especially the last few years on the broadcast.
0: Where did your sound most improve? What did you think, just from an on-air standpoint, where did you get the most, the most better? Where did, where did you improve most uh, in, in those three or four years?
1: I think pacing ultimately helps where you're just not trying to ramrod information down people's throats. If you're fortunate, enough to have two, three, four games in a series because you don't get to it on game one. it'll still be there in game three or four of that set. And that, that was something that I really had to appreciate and understand the pace of the game too. And in those final few years, working with Duke who had played professionally, loves the game, keeps his pulse on the game. um, And as passionate as he is about good baseball, understanding kind of the ebbs and the flows and what to look for within the game really helped me grow. So I think growing and talking the game with the players and the coaches and the Rovers that are coming through, having a little bit more sense of what actually happens within the game and the feel of the game by working with people that actually played the game, those were really big leaps for me personally and professionally. Um, again, that's that's what we were afforded with Duke. I get smaller sample sizes working with the Blue Jays and actually having a broadcaster slash player in the booth because most of the time our broadcast setup is to broadcasters versus having that player input. Um, but to be able to pull back a little bit in the play-by-play and actually tell you a little bit about the X's and the O's, it just comes from that big circle of gathering all your information, having a feel of the game and enough knowledge where hopefully you're one of the, the smarter people you know, that are watching this game because you've done all your homework ahead of time. Um, I think I think that combination helped me a lot.
0: How was it a change for you, too? Because mo- most of us will always go through the minor leagues having not worked with a former player, somebody who has that perspective. We just work with another broadcaster. Um, how did your outlook, your approach change when you realized you had Duke, who uh, certainly can call a game and does do some innings, but that you could play off him a little bit for, for his expertise and his experience, as opposed to just uh you know a, a guy sitting next to you who's also working his way up the ladder
1: when you work with a former player i think you are automatically allowed to have a bigger personality when you're on the air because former players to me keep things lighthearted they have some inside jokes they have a vernacular that's automatically going to come out <laughs> um you, you know in the baseball slang and and you can your, – your inside jokes, your ability to kind of let loose a little bit is more – it's not more fun. Don't get me wrong. And I, I don't mean this to demean any booth that's got two broadcasters in it and, you know, they have a good time. And Mike and I have a good time, too, because we believe fun things are fun <laughs> and we should have fun. Um, but, you know, when a guy can laugh about a situation or a play as a former player – And you can give a one liner or a quip about it too. You know, I think that's just one, it sounds natural. If it sounds natural, it's going to feel natural from a listener standpoint. And the fact that if you've got a former player in there, you can draw all that stuff out. And you can, on radio, it's a little bit different because, you know, you do want some some sort of rhythm where you're not missing pitches and talking over pitches and, and that, but on TV too, you know, it's an open medium where you can just cover up and backtrack and clean up the play on radio. I come up and I make a point to be specific about questions. If the game is dragging or to, to draw this insight out of the player or the coach, you know, that you're sitting next to Um, it's, it's a totally different broadcast, but it's a very loose broadcast if you got guys that are comfortable on the air um and and that's something too that you've got to learn right from from a former player standpoint guys that are really green wearing a headset and not comfortable with their own sound on the air to the guys that are really comfortable with their sound on the air and then getting the insight in the background and making them tell stories and making them break down plays
0: um answer this question very carefully uh who is the best partner you've ever had on the air
1: Oh man, I had to be that young guy early in my uh, my <laughs> Buffalo stop. Man, he has he ever gone on the leaps and bounds? I
0: have no uh, idea what he's doing now.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the renowned the renowned voice of the Ball State Cardinals and most of this
0: podcast. He's he's great. Um, <laughs> What's up? What was that year, 2009? 2009. It's been 10 years. It was 2009, yeah. God, that's A decade like a long... of hits. Oh my Look goodness. at us. Yikes. Um, what's working with Dan Schulman like, though? Um, not a former player, but to have that guy by your side.
1: That guy by my side is <laughs> from somebody that grew up listening to Dan in college basketball first, appreciating what then if you, f- you find him on the national mediums doing baseball and you try to have – some career track in baseball, you realize immediately if you do our, our work, our broadcast, how incredibly good Dan Schulman is. When you're sitting next to him, it's hard not to be intimidated. You're like, Holy crap. How did he see that? How did he know that? How, you know, like how in the world is he going about his day? Um, So I tried to learn last year and that was really fortunate for me to be in the big leagues for the first time and work almost 40 games shoulder-to-shoulder with Dan and see how he orchestrates the clubhouse, the field, the people behind the scenes, Um, that was really impressive. Uh, Also knowing that now Dan's almost got 25 years of Major League Broadcast experience, more than that, maybe coming up on 30, uh, of Major League Broadcast experience, uh, that black book of his is unmatched which is really awesome. Now you're going to gain that automatically with experience, right? But if, if we had a question about another team on the air, he could fire off a text to a, maybe a coach, absolutely 100%, a PR person or somebody in the media, that he's crossed paths with. And we instantaneously got an answer. So um, nobody blows off the call. Nobody blows off the text. Um, So if we had questions, we go to Dan and he usually gets responses immediately. Uh, But to watch him work and watch him conduct his business um, and how he also conducts the actual play-by-play calling is really incredible. And I'll give you a great example. For somebody that had an extensive experience in the minor leagues where sometimes you even have a monitor in the booth, let alone don't have a monitor in the booth, in our minor league travels. And if you have a monitor, can you trust the college intern or high school student that's operating the camera uh, to, to call the game or a bang-bang play You know that may or may not happen? In Buffalo, we were really fortunate with our camera crew. Other places, not so much. But Dan loves calling the majority of the game off the monitor. He's got extensive TV experience, obviously. But that was something that he really helped me grow to trust in in the realm of broadcasting and relying on the monitor. And everywhere we go in the major leagues, you're going to have at least one monitor. And that's going to help you with pitch location, pitch tracking. Um, bang bang plays, and just you know, seesawing back and forth to try to to try to call the action as well as you can by using all of the tools that are available. And that was really, that was something that you pick up and you learn and you watch them work in the booth. And um, you know that was that was really really helpful for me going through year one and now implementing even more so and trusting it. And ultimately, relying on it in some cases in year
0: two. What's different about a major league ballpark, a major league clubhouse, a major league experience? Um, and and how did you get used to that in the early going? Like, I, I mean, I've been, I think, in one major league clubhouse in my life, and I about peed down my leg. Um, and at that point, I'd been in plenty of minor league clubhouses. It's just a, it, it felt like a different vibe. Um, how do you best adapt to that and and still go about doing your job in the same fashion that you had been doing for more than a decade?
1: Everything is much more structured in the major leagues. Everything from your access to the time that you can sit down and, and even pop in a manager's office there are relationships that you may have with a coach or a player or a manager, you know, where it's easy to pop your head in the manager's office before they set time where he'll field questions or linger afterwards, where, you know, it's in this buffer zone. Uh, If you want to ask a question, that's really, you know, if you, if you have those relationships, you're fortunate. Um, But in year one, I was not prepared for how structured the day needed to be once you got to the ballpark. Because you can only go in the clubhouse from a certain time. It starts at a certain time and it ends at a certain time. And it's not only the media PR people that are looking out. You know the guys that orchestrate the the operation of the clubhouse. If they see you lingering, they're like, Hey man, clubhouse is closed. You got to get and you have to abide by the rules. So I was not from a minor league component prepared. You know, we can walk in the the, the manager's office at one thirty in the afternoon and be like, Hey Skip, you got the lineup? Yeah, here it is. Take it. Now, you hardly ever see a lineup printed on paper. You're relying on these stupid video boards that are dependent on multiple layers of people. You know, like the PR people have to send the lineup – in 2019, the PR people have to send the lineup to Vegas first or the MLB office. So it's it's housed in this, this network, and then it gets approval for posting, and then it comes back. And you may see it in the media lounge first before you see it on the video boards in the clubhouse. I don't know. It's just this mess, but the lineup is just a mess. But that is one of the key components of me starting my day. And I just want the lineup. I want to do my pregame interview and then I want to go get the lineup in the book. So that's one of the biggest structure of my day components that I had to adjust and figure out how to operate my day with all of these things that are circling around and happening. Right. So, um, the structure of the day, the time of the clubhouse, and when you have access to the players. Also a level of the comfort that you want to have on the field of play and when to approach a guy is a a lot different than in the minor leagues too, where batting practice may only be a certain time. And and most guys are really comfortable with members of the media, the broadcast crew being around the cage. We're fortunate, really fortunate in Toronto because – Buck Martinez has a half century of playing and managing and coaching and broadcasting experience. Pat Tabler has been on the broadcast, you know, for 25 years with the Blue Jays and they're both former players and they both conduct themselves extremely well around the cage with players and coaches. Um, And with that comfort level from my minor league experience to, to watching these guys, you know, kind of set up, the availability for somebody on the broadcast angle to be allowed around the cage. you know, That was fortunate for me too. Um, but year one to year two, I've done a number of different things. Well, those are going to be the same year two, looking back after year one, I found myself wasting a lot of time or wishing I was doing something else in that hurry up and wait mode. So while we are in hurry up and wait mode, if it's you're done with the clubhouse, the clubhouse is closed. We have, 10 to 15 minutes scheduled to meet with the manager. I'm doing the games on the iPad now where I'm now putting in everything that I've been able to mine out of the clubhouse conversation and the batting practice stuff. And I'm going to scribble it in the sidebar of my scorebook and, and try to conduct myself a little bit more efficiently in in the stages of my day to get up to the broadcast. Instead of being on the field, wishing I was scribbling stuff in my scorebook (laughs) upstairs um, I can I can take those ten or fifteen valuable minutes that I'm kinda of killing time and scribble it down so I'm not rushing to get every nugget off a scratch pad onto the scorebook for my game.
0: What is the what's the difference when something like Vladimania happens and you now have to deal with that added wrench where like there's a normal day and then there's every eye of the universe feels like it is on you for for a little while uh, type feeling.
1: There is nothing that compares to Vladdy Day. (laughs) Uh, The the sense of excitement, the buildup, the media crush, the amount of just absolute bodies that are surrounding uh, the podium, the clubhouse, the dugout, out in front of the dugout, being around the batting cage and turning around, and Vladdy's sister and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Senior are over my right shoulder, um, I thought, well, I need to move now. <laughs> um, there is no, <laughs> there's no day that is like a Vladdy day. What, there was are it, days was it where more
0: or less than the media for Ken Takahashi from Japan.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Oh, way more. Way more. <laughs> um, you, you know, you've got Ken Takahashi. You had even Mooney Kawasaki and some of the media contingent that would come down from Toronto to cover to cover Mooney and Buffalo. I mean, nothing compares <laughs> to what we have seen. Maybe in Los Angeles, you could compare it to the Otani and Ichiro contingents that have followed him around now for decades. That's the only thing that I think from, from an outside perspective...
0: But that's all Japanese media. You, like this is, this is, it's all Japanese media,
1: right? Yeah. And that's the thing, too. Where... If you're talking about Canadian base, American base, and and really, the Dominican Republic too had a, had a massive contingent um, of of broadcasters that were there, and the the pressure that that kid has felt over the last couple of weeks of his first major major league experience, I can't imagine going through it at a 38 year old perspective, let alone a 20 year old perspective, um, and it's been a lot to deal with just from. It goes back to the structure, right, where you're not going to have a, a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. scrum in his locker. Everything has to be either in a dugout or at a podium because of the crush of media. So, you know, those days are big, and you hope that you get a little bit of a lead time that you can prepare for it, but but in the outside you know those, those, those days and those situations are very rare, and the schedule works in the Blue Jays favor, where at least Vladymania happens at Rogers Center first. Uh, it was nuts in Los Angeles, where his dad ultimately you know became a hall of famer there too, and then going to Texas, where there was a lot of, a lot of local interest, plus the national scape. Um, so you knew it was kind of coming, and it was going to happen fast and furious and days at least since then have gotten a little bit more normal, where they are similarly structured the way that you would normally conduct yourself.
0: How do you get to him, like where where you need to have the conversation with him because you're Ben Wagner, you know, voice of the Blue Jays, so to speak? Um, How do you get your time so that it's, it's unique to what you guys will produce as opposed to what everybody's going to read everywhere else?
1: Well... I really haven't changed anything specifically with Vladdy just like I didn't with Josh Donaldson. Um, you know, if you want an opportunity to talk to the guys, you, you, you sense a time where they're going to be available. And you do a little bit by observing too. You know, are, are they early afternoon workout guys? Do they usually sit around? Do they play cards early in the afternoon? You get a sense of how they can kind of conduct their day. And you take that opportunity. And sometimes it just falls in your lap. Just like in Texas, after the first day media crush on that Friday, Vladdy and me were the only two guys sitting in the dugout in Arlington, Texas. So, here's one that's a layup for you, Ben Wagner. Go get it. So, um, you know, and and as much as as Vladdy in his own right, you know, uses interpreters and stuff. Um, he's very comfortable in one-on-one conversation without microphones to at least have. Have the amount of to have the time and the amount of information that I'm going to ask them about. Um, so I try to carve out time for a lot of individual one-on-one conversation, and and see where it goes from there. But that's that's where you have to find it. You have to you have to go out and you have to seek. You know what makes the players day comfortable for them. So it's it, hopefully from a broadcast perspective, it's an easy approach. Um, and I I rarely ever ask a media or a PR person to carve out specific time, my own club or even the opposition club. I try to find out what works, you know, within the confines and and go from there and approach the person one-on-one. And I think that gets a lot of headway with the players too, that you you see them going up for one-on-one communication, whether it was a good day or a bad day. And that's the same way I, you know, I treat Vladimir Guerrero Jr. the same way that that I hopefully – treat tim mesa and um you know in the coming hours edwin jackson who has 14 major league jerseys on his back and has done the gamut of media crush and you know kind of flown under the radar but hopefully i can treat everybody the same
0: and uh god who was the guy who i don't remember who who was the guy in buffalo who was the major leaguer from the royals outfielder you know what? It's better uh, if we don't use his name, or if it's the guy who, when you ask to interview him, just pulls his pants down and says, "You're ready to do it." Um, that was a good, <laughs> that was a good time in Buffalo. Um, teachable,
1: yeah, teachable moment, right? Yeah,
0: I'm gonna have to look it up now, but you know, for my future safety, in case I run into I have an him, idea. Who, yeah, I, I have an idea <laughs> who it may or may not have been. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember yeah. the name. Um, let, let me go big picture, kind of back to where we began um, to to bring things home a little bit. Uh, in general, if we're talking about a baseball broadcast, uh, what is good to you? Like, If you turn on the radio, beyond inning score, who the batter is, uh, what is a differentiator that makes you interested in what you're listening to and that you try to do to keep people locked in?
1: Well, the score and in the inning are ultimately important, right? Where you try to cycle that in as frequently as possible, and do it differently. Um, now, on specifics to your question, I always like to work in how the score happened. If not every half an inning, um, with the turning points of the game, you know you can say four walks early led to a three-run lead, and that's where we're at now in the seventh. Or, you know, you can say um, uh, opponent. Made a guy really grind early, and that's why starters knocked out of the game and they're figuring it out. so you have to have a reason why people who are late tuning into a ball game understand where this game is because they could in in a lot of instances not be with you for hours. Think how much action happens in the course of a given day if you miss a couple of hours, let alone just a ball game. So I constantly try to update people of what has happened over the course of a game and you have to have some sort of human connection, whether it's an at-bat, a story um, from the player's past, where he got to a current team that he's on, if he's had a lot of travels. Ed um, Edwin Jackson is a great example <laughs> where he's had a lot of one-year stints with ball clubs before joining the Blue Jays actually a second time so you know that that's going to be a layer of conversation within the broadcast of that 20 minutes that he's actually a blue jay without ever wearing a uniform um i like to have a lot of human interest stuff stacked up on top of you know the statistics and where where a person ranks you know it's it's great to say this guy had 65 appearances last year i think even to a casual baseball fan oh that's a lot of work sure but where did it rank in the team where did it rank in the American league? Where did it rank in baseball last year? 65 appearances is cool, but did he have a razor center and run average or did he have an RA of six fifty? you know? So how are you going to paint it all together? And also then get balls and strikes balls in play, the score in the inning, all, all that tied together. I want, I want a ball game to have rhythm. Um, I wanna have a ball game that has a historical reference. I want it to all have present reference and at the same time I want to be able to steer everybody together through this like this this wandering three hour window that we've got through twenty seven outs for a ball club. You know, and, and how how today is gonna play into tomorrow and why today is impacted by what happened the day before or the off day for the blue jays that got their bullpen right i think it all should tie together and i think that's important to where you can have a sense of where a team is within a given series within a given week road trip homestand whatever have you and that month and the season and i think i think the bigger picture is really important outside just those those finite things um that you can bring up And you can also talk about within the broadcast that has a 25-year-old kid going through the ups and downs of his first year in the big leagues. But, you know, his mom is celebrating her 50th birthday and she got to watch batting practice in Minneapolis, Minnesota for the first time. Um, Those are things that those are things you can bring out um, that that your access allows you to bring out Mm. because you're there and you're traveling with a ball club.
0: Um, ben, if people want to catch uh, the Blue Jays uh, or you on radio or television on any number of outlets that you uh, that you cover the team, how do they track you down?
1: Well, the easiest is through the MLB app. I think anybody that is tuned in stateside and you have access to not only our broadcast but everybody, uh, Sportsnet 590 is the flagship station in Toronto, and we have... The reach across an entire country, which not very many teams can say that. But in Canada, on the Sportsnet Radio Network, we have great affiliates that are with us each and every night, border to border to border. Um, and then the MLB app, sportsnet590.ca. Of course, MLB.com. On Twitter, BenWag247. That's me. And um, the Blue Jays do an awesome job of promoting our broadcast, too. So it's, it's really hard if you have any <laughs> any sort of a google ability to not find us and our broadcasts
0: awesome well ben i know i've got to let you get to the ballpark and uh, get set for uh, for tonight with the giants uh, i did think of who that player was by the way and i'll tell you when we stop recording uh, but but i thank you for uh, for hopping on here and uh, and being a part of this well it's great to talk to you joel thanks so much all right that's ben wagner of the buffalo bisons oh wow that's a throwback that's ben wagner of the toronto blue jays joining us you can find him on social media uh, at Ben WaG 247 and he uh, gave you all the channels to track down the blue Jays as well uh, i 'm forever grateful for him there uh, to him for giving me an opportunity getting my foot in this business professionally with the bisons. Uh, it was a really good good year to be with Buffalo and actually Ben helped get me the connection that got me at the University of South Florida after Buffalo as well so he 's responsible um, for in some ways my first two jobs in this industry so and you know, one thing led to another. All kind of dominoes. Uh, a lot goes back to Ben Wagner for me. So many thanks to him uh, for taking the time to be on the pod and uh, for everything he's done for me as well. Uh, give him a shout on Twitter. Again, BenWag247 if you enjoyed the conversation. And uh, let him know what you took away from today. Uh, we're back at it next week. I'll be in Avon, Ohio for the Mid-American Conference Baseball Tournament, hopefully with some good results. I'll let you know next Friday morning right back here on the pod. This is Play by Playcast. By the way, you really thought I was getting rid of Marshmallow completely? No, new open. The close is still the same. We're on a one-week break. See you next Friday. We're out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.